Let me begin here, just a, a brief uh, citation from Cornelius Van Til. I do apologize for not having, I have notes, but they're not yet like notes I put in your hands. Um, and so that's, that's an apology. I uh, was working on these more last night, which I thought was fitting because that's how I did almost all my work for seminary uh, back in the day. And so I thought I'd do it one more time. Uh, but that means I don't have these in, in uh, fully handoutable condition. Uh, but I will try to be interesting nonetheless and clear, ideally. So I begin here with a block quote from Cornelius Van Til. He writes this, as you know, I have constantly maintained that there are basically only two philosophies of life. One of these views is that which is based on the triune God of Scripture as the final reference point for all predication. This is my position. The other is that which assumes that man, fallen and apostate man, is the final reference point in predication. This is the position which I oppose. I love that. That's really clear, right? Um, and just laying that out as, as, as a foundational element of his uh, whole system of thinking, his whole system of apologetics. So I want to begin with a question. What is the distinguishing mark, the distinguishing characteristic of Cornelius Van Til's apologetic? At a popular level, and I suggest here perhaps even at a seminary level, I think the most common answer would be the use of a transcendental argument to defend the truth of Christianity. There may be other answers that we might give, but I think that might be the most common answer that would be given. If we ask, what, what makes someone a Vantillian? Um, the use of a transcendental argument is going to be one of the, the most um, prominent answers there. We can separate approaches to apologetics into two broad categories, traditional and presuppositional. In the traditional box, we have the classical and evidential approaches. The classical apologist leans heavily on rational arguments, deductions from indubitable first principles. The cosmological and ontological arguments are noteworthy examples. The evidentialist highlights empirical arguments, creation science, design, arguments for the bodily resurrection of Christ. The presuppositionalist, by contrast, employs a transcendental argument, right? This is kind of the way we, we sort things out. It is not that the presuppositionalist is unwilling to employ some of these other arguments, and in fact, I think we ought to, but he contends that in the way that they are most often constructed, they are flawed and cannot succeed in making a rational case for the truth of Christianity, right? And again, this is uh, probably not breaking ground for, for most of you here, but the, the um, definitive verse, the, the important verse here is Romans 1, that the unbeliever's position is without a defense, without an apologetic, literally, right? His position is defenseless. And, and sort of the uh, mark, the uh, goal as a presuppositional apologist when I sit down with conversation with an unbeliever is to demonstrate to him the defenselessness of his position. Um, that his position, and this is uh, again just kind of stock Vantillianism, that his position is not less reasonable than mine, but that his position truly is defenseless, right? That's the goal, that's the aspiration uh, when I sit down. And, and, and we want to uh, assert very clearly it is not my argument that makes his position defenseless, it is objectively defenseless. It is my task as an apologist to argue and present in such a way that he comes to see the defenselessness of his position, right? That's the goal. And what Van Til would argue is that the traditional proofs fall short of that goal, right? That they make um, the existence of God or the truth of Christianity probable or even the most probable thing, but they don't make it certain, right? They don't leave the unbeliever, demonstrate to the unbeliever that he is without excuse. The flaw, uh, uh, okay, so it's fundamental then to the presuppositionalist self-identification is very often this particular form of argument, that the way that we tend to think is the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the argument from design, they're all good, but none of them do 
what we want to do. None of them meet that ambition of leaving the unbeliever without an excuse. By contrast, right, again, this is um, just sort of uh, broad outlines, the transcendental argument we think does, right? That's how I think we often think about this. Why does it matter, right, second question to pile on top of the first question, why does it matter that we define how Van Til's apologetic differs from other approaches? My answer is that Van Til himself and presuppositionalists after him have typically argued that Van Til's apologetic is uniquely correct, right? Um, in, in fact, one of the, and I'll just I'll throw this out here because I do think, uh, especially in the second session, we'll get to actually some of things that apply to apologetics. But one of the um, problems in Ventilian apologetics is that Ventilian apologists tend to be very often more engaged in meta-apologetics than in apologetics, right? Um, Ventilian apologists often are more zealous to convince you of the validity of Ventilian apologetics than they are of Christian, uh, the Christian faith. Right? Um, and it's, it's meta-apologetics, right? I am here to give a defense of Van Til, right? Rather than a defense of Christian theism. Um, uh, but the reason for that is there are, and I'll read some of these here shortly, there's no shortage of statements in Van Til in which Van Til clearly thinks he is doing something that stands apart from virtually everything else that has ever been done in apologetics, right? Um, and that's why the question of uniqueness is a relevant question, right? Is Van Til right to think that what he's doing in apologetics is distinct from everything else that's come before him? Van Til did not intend to add one more interesting argument to the general apologetic arsenal. Instead, he understood his approach to be distinct from and superior to what had preceded him. In his analysis, if God is the kind of being that Orthodox Christian theism claims him to be, and this is a quote, the only argument for an absolute God that holds water is a transcendental argument. I don't have time to explore this uh, line of thought, but it's very important. Um, I think one of the best ways of trying to articulate what Van Til's whole project is, is to say, let's start by being Christian and ask, in a world in which, in a universe in which Christianity is actually the case, what would the task of apologetics look like, right? Um, that, that we bring our theology to bear. And so Van Til endorses a transcendental argument and the, the sort of presuppositionalism for which he becomes known, not because it's philosophically interesting, but because ultimately he thinks it's theologically necessary. It has to do uh, uh, supremely with the triunaseity of God. Uh, a quote here from Van Til on, on uh, the place of theology and apologetics. The argument for Christianity must therefore be that of presupposition. With August, uh, Augustine, it must be maintained that God's revelation is the sun from which all other light de derives. The best, famous line here from Van Til, the only, the absolutely certain proof of the truth of Christianity is that unless its truth be presupposed, there is no proof of anything. Christianity is proved as being the very foundation of the idea of proof itself. Now, why is it, in Van Tilian thought, that a transcendental argument works and everything else doesn't? Central to this Van Tilian distinction is that all other approaches to apologetics are faith fatally, I'm sorry, compromised by autonomy, and that's going to be obviously a key word for us today. As it is a term central to our whole discussion, I think it's fair for us to offer a definition of autonomy, um, and I'm sure I'm begging, borrowing something, stealing from someone here, but uh, I didn't have anything open, so I, I don't think I'm plagiarizing this one. Um, my, my understanding of plagiarism here, to grant autonomy to the unbeliever, is to grant him the unqualified right 
to consider any question set before him without deferring to any other authority. Right? That's, I think, the core of autonomy. That, that the, the assumption is, and, and, and the reality is, your, your nicest unbelieving neighbor generally takes without question that right of autonomy. That, that, of course, I am within my rights to examine the case that you have put before me, and if it, if it satisfies my rational demands, or whatever other demands I, I place upon it, I will find your case acceptable. If not, I won't. But the idea that at the outset of any discussion, I am obligated to submit my will or my reason to some authority simply because he is the authority. Well, that is just out of the question, right? That's the essence of autonomy. Um, and that, uh, so, so um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go back here. Um, the unqualified right to consider any question set before him without deferring to any other authority and particularly the authority of the Christian God, right? That is autonomy. The autonomous man, may indeed find reasons that he believes are adequate to convince him of theism in general or even Christianity in particular. But if we grant him autonomy, right? Uh, here I, uh, I'll speak as a fool. If we buy into, if we agree with him and encourage him in his own commitment to autonomy, we would insist that he accepts Christianity if and only if his own criteria have been satisfied, right? That is the essence of autonomy as it relates to apologetics. I'll just uh, pause here very quickly and make one, I think, practical um, suggestion for you or as you have opportunity to in instruct in a pastoral role, people in your churches for the task of apologetics. I th when I have a chance to speak one time to maybe a group of young people on apologetics, and I, I, like, here's one thing I can say. Um, the, the one idea I want to leave them with is when you sit down in a conversation with an unbeliever and you're trying to defend the faith, the assumption uh, almost always that we go into the conversation with, that the unbeliever goes into the conversation with, is that he is starting from that position of neutrality. If we convince him, great. If we don't convince him, he's justified in remaining neutral, right? I mean, that really is the assumption that we go into so many of these discussions with. And, and, and just on a practical level, the Vantillian insight that, no, the unbeliever himself has a position of which, of which he must give an account. That realization all by itself changes that conversation that um, and all apologetics conversations, hypothetical apologetic conversations take place at Starbucks, right? And so you're sitting at the Starbucks and you're having this conversation. The realization that I do not alone carry burden of proof changes the dynamic of the conversation. Right? So I would just give you that one um, just practical tidbit because we're going to um, explore um, some th theological, apologetic, philosophical, at least middle deep waters. Um, so uh, hopefully that's a useful, practical thing to take away here. <clears throat> Van Til argues that the sometimes unexamined granting of autonomy to the unbeliever is the fatal characteristic of virtually all other approaches to apologetics. To the degree, in Van Til's way of stating it, that apologetics grants legitimacy to the un uh, unbelieving autonomy, it will to that degree be unable to reach truly Christian theistic conclusions, right? Van Til would say it is because we go into the discussion without undermining the unbeliever's autonomy that we're left with the idea that Christianity is most probably true or, or more likely than the alternatives or something along those lines. The reason that we cannot show the unbeliever that his position is without excuse, that his position is defenseless, is that at the very outset we have haven't undermined the most important thing, which is his right to make the final judgment on all things. 
So here another quote from Van Til as he lumps all other approaches to apologetics in the bad bin. <laughs> we refer now to those Protestants who are usually spoken of as evangelicals, as distinct from those who embrace the Reformed faith. Under the term evangelicals, we include all those who hold to the remonstrant or Arminian view of man and his relation to God. We include also the Lutherans. To be sure, Lutherans are not by any means to be identified as Arminian in every respect, but on the point at issue, their view is basically the same as that of the Arminians. The point is that both Arminians and Lutherans maintain that man has a measure of ultimacy or autonomy. I'm not gonna explore this now, but it, I, uh, several years ago I wrote an article for the journal I think there is no reason, this was when uh, Scott Oliphant, who was my advisor at Westminster, was trying to rename presuppositionalism into covenantal apologetics. I don't think that's uh, uh, taken hold, except in very limited circles. It took hold in my dissertation because he was my advisor and I wanted him to be happy. Um, but uh, um, I, I tried to make the argument that there, I don't see any reason that you can't be a dispensational Vantillian, right? But you can't be an Arminian Vantillian, right? It's impossible to coherently be an Arminian Vantillian. And, and the reason is to the degree that man has um, especially libertarian free will, God lives in an open chance universe just as much as we do, right? You can't solve the contingency problem. Um, except on a, on a robustly Calvinistic uh, framework. And that's why Van Til will distinguish uh, views of apologetics. Here's evangelical or Lutheran or uh, Arminian and Reformed, right? And he's not so much uh, stressing here the coven covenant theology idea, but the exhaustive sovereignty idea. In this respect, right, I'm continuing the quote, the po uh, sorry, the point is that both Arminians and Lutherans maintain that man has a measure of ultimacy or autonomy. In this respect, they resemble the Roman Catholics. The measure of autonomy ascribed to man is much smaller in the case of many Arminians and Lutherans than it is in the case of Roman Catholics. Even so, any measure of autonomy ascribed to man implies a detraction from the self-sufficiency of God. It implies that God can no longer be taken as the final reference point in human predication, which is what we started with. It is expected then that evangelicals, holding as they do in their theology to the idea of man as having some measure of ultimacy, will also maintain that Protestants may and even must join with Roman Catholics in defending certain doctrines that they have in common. And I, I use, there's a lot we could uh, just explore right there. But that, that's the idea is, is um, uh, whether we call it Arminianism or, or something else, the, the core idea here is that assumption that man is right to sit in judgment of these things. Man is within his rights to be autonomous. Therefore, Van Til claims that his method and his method alone is, quote, consistently Christian, or quote, truly Christian, or quote, fully Christian. Um, he also does not hesitate to affirm the corollary to these claims, that other approaches to apologetics are, quote, less consistently Christian, quote, offering a synthesis of paganism and Christianity to the natural man for his salvation. Bentil claims that the traditional theistic proofs are in their standard formulations hopelessly compromise. The compromise in Bentil's analysis is intrinsic to the traditional proofs. All of them, he contends, grant the validity of unbelieving autonomy so that some notion or another is intelligible and then attempt to move from that common notion to the existence of God. In such an apologetic strategy, for the sake of common ground, belief or disbelief in Christian theism makes no difference to the proper understanding of some element of human experience, causation, for instance, or design, right? That on those, that whatever that common ground is, it, it, it doesn't matter whether Christianity is true or not. We both affirm X, and now we can go from X and make the case for Christianity, right? On this, God's lordship actually doesn't matter, right? That's the fatal um, problem in, in Van Til's understanding. Again, a quote from Van Til, even to say that one fact 
is knowable to man directly apart from the relation of both fact and mind to the plan of God is in effect to deny that God is absolutely self-conscious. It is in effect to deny that reality must ultimately and exclusively be interpreted in eternal, in eternal categories. Even to say that one fact can be known by man apart from God is to deny the represent, uh, representational character of human thought, that we know God's thoughts after him in a derivative way. It would be to claim originality for human thought. As such, it would be a denial of the creation of man by God. All right, so, so far we have two pieces in place for our discussion. The first is Vantillian uniqueness, that Vantillian Vantillians typically wish to contrast presuppositionalism with all other approaches, approaches to apologetics. The second is autonomy. This is the great enemy of any fully Christian argument, says Vantill. So here's the question for us for the first hour. But what if transcendental arguments are just as likely to be rooted in autonomy as any traditional argument? Or perhaps even more than the traditional arguments? And that's the case I want us to consider here. <clears throat> I want to make the claim here first that there is nothing intrinsic to the nature of a transcendental argument that saves it from being committed to autonomy. There is nothing intrinsic to a transcendental argument that saves it from being committed to autonomy. Some history here might help us appreciate why this is so. So this is uh, oversimplified history of philosophy stuff, right? Um, so famously, in uh, History of Philosophy, Kant says that David Hume uh, roused him from his dogmatic slumbers, right? And what Hume is best known for, and what Kant, uh, 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 by most accounts, was citing with regard to Hume, is Hume's skepticism regarding induction. Right, that uh, when we do induction, we um, I, I use chairs often. You know, here is a chair, and here's another chair, and we just instantly identify those two things as members of a class of things, of which those are uh, individual instantiations of, or how, however we want to say that. Right, that there is a class where this and this are the same kind of thing. The more you think about that, the harder it is to articulate how that's so, right? Are these two chairs the same thing? And the answer is what? They're not, they're different, right? Um, they're different from each other. And so now we start having to ask the question, well, what are the relevant similarities and differences that allow things to be grouped into classes, right? So here's a chair. If we widen it slightly, it's still a chair. But there's a certain point that you widen it, and what? It's now a, it's now, it's now a bench, right? Where is that point? I've said for years now, parenting, this is what Van Til calls the one in the many problem, right? This is the human problem of induction. Parenting is about one in the many problems. Your kid is sitting at the dinner table and he takes his fork and slams it on the table and you say, do not slam your fork on the table again. So he takes the fork and sort of hits it on the table. <laughs> and, and you say, I told you not to slam it. And he says, I didn't that time. Right? It's a one in the many problem, right? Where, where are the, 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 the seams that allow us to divide up the created world into the proper categories? And it's not just a question of physical objects, though that, um, so Hume is, uh, we, we need to back up and say this, Hume is coming from the perspective of empiricism, that knowledge is, is, is properly um, um, rooted in sense experience, right? Either directly our human senses or instruments that we use to amplify our senses, and it is by the proper use of em empirical, uh, um, interpretation of empirical phenomenon. That's where certain knowledge is from. It is not uh, ultimately from a rational reflection, but from empirical sense data. But what Hume starts doing is saying, let's take actual careful stock of what our senses actually do deliver to us. And the answer is not much, right? So, so again, another example that I use. Um, 
a couple years ago now, a little over a year ago, I, I bought a couple of cars. We, we needed to replace some family cars and I bought them online. And I bought them online in part because I, I, I really just um, uh, uh, came to terms with the fact that um, if I go to a dealer's uh, uh, a lot and I open the hood, I don't know what I'm looking at anyway. <laughs> right, like this isn't, uh, the, the, nothing is gained, right? And, and so if you, you, know, you, you pop the hood of your car and, and you ask, do you see the whatever, the oil filter? I don't think it's normally visible from the top. I don't think, right? Um, but even if you, I, I probably could identify an oil filter. There are parts of the car that if you said, hey, do you see the whatever? This is actually a, an interesting question to answer because from, a, from an empirical point of view, the light waves that are bouncing off of that car part are entering my visual system. I do see it, but what? I also don't, right? I would say, no, I, I don't see it, right? Because if we start understanding what our visual apparatus actually delivers to us, it is not much, right? You understand, it doesn't tell us that that, that thing is a fork or that thing is a car part, or that thing, that is something that our minds apply to it, right? Our, our visual system doesn't give us that. Like I say, it's not just material things, but it's, it's um, uh, events um, that, that here is, you know, uh, uh, th so this is the problem of induction with events. I'm sitting in a factory and I'm watching a conveyor belt that's producing rubber ducks and it's yellow rubber duck, yellow rubber duck. How many yellow rubber ducks have to go by before I know that the next thing coming down the conveyor belt is a yellow rubber duck? And the answer is what? There is no number that would guarantee that the next thing is going to be a yellow rubber duck. This is the problem of induction. Right? And once you come to terms with the problem of induction, you realize that if we gain knowledge by sense experience and if we don't have an answer to the problem of induction, it turns out that we don't know anything. We live in a world of constant flux change. It's buzzing, blooming confusion. It's sound and fury signifying nothing. Right? And that is what woke Kant up from his dogmatic slumbers. Right? That if we start with empiricism as our epistemology, as our way of knowing, and it turns out that that way of knowing leaves us bankrupt in terms of knowledge, where do we go from there? So Kant says, okay, we've got to answer this problem. And the Kantian move to answer the problem is to turn the question on its head, right? This is very important at this point. What Kant says is instead of starting with an epistemology, a way of knowing, and then asking when we apply it, what would that enable us to know? Kant says, let's, let's do it backwards. We have to assume that we have knowledge and intelligible experience. That's not coherent, that, that uh, assertion is not coherently deniable. We must, it must be the case that we know things and that we have intelligible experience. Now, Kant says, what must be the case that would enable that to happen? And this is what uh, Kant writes, the transcendental deduction of the categories, right? That whatever it is that would make knowledge possible must be so because we can't coherently deny that we have knowledge. It's for this reason that Kant is often regarded as the father of transcendental arguments, the originator of the transcendental argument. That's the, the, what makes that argument a transcendental argument is instead of starting with the system and asking what we know, it assumes we know and asks what are the necessary preconditions that would enable that, right? You start with the conclusion and as it were deduce the premises. Does that make sense, right? That's the transcendental argument. So two things um, that we should learn from Kant in transcendental arguments, um, I, I, or, or one thing, but say it two, two ways. The first thing we should do here is pause 
to consider the breathtaking audacity of, of the, the, the amount of autonomy in Kant's transcendental argument. Um, essentially, what Kant is saying, and he has uh, ways of saying this, we'll get to um, uh, later here. What Kant is saying is, if it is impossible for you to conceive something as being not being so, it must be so. That thing must be so. Like, if you find it impossible to conceive the alternative, reality must be the, 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 the way that you conceive it to be. Says who? Right? Um, you know, one of the things I, I revisit as a sermon application in our church from time to time is the, is the profound heresy of like word faith stuff, speaking your reality to in, into existence, right? There is one and only one being in the universe who speaks reality into existence, and you ain't him. <laughs> right? This, it's enormously important, right? Um, we don't speak reality to existence. Reality is not determined by the limits of what I can conceive. And yet, sort of the embedded premise in a Kantian transcendental argument is, if, if it's impossible for us to think otherwise about something, that thing must be so. That's radical autonomy. That's radical autonomy. And again, this shouldn't, shouldn't have been shocking to us. There's an essay uh, you should read at least once in your life, not because it's good, but because you should be aware of it. Uh, Kant wrote an essay called What is Enlightenment, right? This is uh, one of those fun periods of time very often. Uh, in, in history, we look back and we give a label to different times in history. But, but Kant is living during the Enlightenment, and they're like, hey, this is the Enlightenment. <laughs> like at the very time, it's, um, I, I just find that interesting that they were labeling it themselves. Kant has an essay, you can find it online, copyright's long expired, called What is Enlightenment? What is Enlightenment? Fairly short essay. And the essence of the essay is enlightenment is not taking any claims on authority. Right? He actually has a very, it's, it's again worth reading, but he actually has a very striking illustration. He says, if you're a clergyman, you may have um, uh, you know, taken vows that when you are executing your pastoral office, when you're preaching, you must properly preach the dogma of the church that you, you have vowed to serve. But when you go into your study, you cannot be bound by any dogma. Right? Your academic work has to be utterly unconstrained or that you're not a, an enlightened person. You're not a free man. Right? In other words, enlightenment is what? What would the key word here be? Autonomy. Right? That is to say, the father of transcendental arguments is committed at root to autonomy. The form of the argument is not a guard against autonomy, it is a radical expression of it. Does that, does that make sense? Are you tracking with, with where we're going so far, right? Is, um, uh, and and the, the reason I want to uh, stress this is I, I do think, especially on a popular level, it, it has been communicated that, that the uniqueness of Antillian apologetics is if you just use a transcendental argument, you don't have the problems that you've got with all these other traditional arguments as though the, the, the transcendental argument form by itself is, is pristine. And it's not. It's just not. There's nothing unique to the form that makes it a safeguard against autonomy. <clears throat> and because of these deep roots in autonomy, a Vantillian apologist should not be surprised to find that transcendental arguments like other arguments rooted in autonomy, can suffer from enormous difficulties. And that's where we want to go next and probably finish the first session. Sec uh, session or section. Both work. I could get one or the other out of my mouth. So, 
Because transcendental arguments are rooted in autonomy, how does that show up then in critiques of transcendental arguments? So one of the things that you should pick up on already is that transcendental arguments are not uniquely Vantillian, right? Um, Kant is deducing his whole system on the basis of, of a transcendental argument form. There is a revival of transcendental arguments in, the, in philosophy, secular philosophy in the mid-1900s. And this is where uh, I devoted my, my study and my dissertation. Um, and, and so we'll, we'll camp here for the rest of the time uh, uh, before lunch. Um, so this discussion that's going on in secular philosophy about tr uh, transcendental arguments is happening without any knowledge that, so, so far as I can tell, that Van Til even exists. And as best I can determine, Van Til is showing no knowledge that this discussion of transcendental arguments is happening. Okay, So, so here's where this kicks off. There's a, a philosopher by the name of P.F. Strawson, Strawson uh, writes a book called The Bounds of Sense. And part of his project in The Bounds of Sense is to um, uh, again argue against the external world skeptic, right? How do we know we're not just brains and bats? How do we know we're not just plagued with Cartesian demons? How do we know that there really is a world outside us? How do I know that you all aren't just projections of my own mind? That I don't know why I'm projecting you, but there you are, right? How do we know that there really is an enduring world outside of my own uh, perception of it? And what Strawson seeks to do in The Bounds of Sense is, is, is rehabilitate uh, transcendental arguments against external world skepticism. But he has to do it in a different way than Kant does. And this becomes important. Kant is, Kant's position is sometimes labeled, transcendental idealism. Right? Transcendental idealism. So Kant is an idealist. Idealist is one of these sad, unfortunate words in philosophy that depending what era and what sort of topic can mean contradictory things at times, right? But what, what Kant means or what is meant for Kant when he's labeled an idealist, and there's more to say, but just very simply, is that mind in some way determines reality. Right? That, that mind is determinative, that like the causal arrow, the big causal arrow in the universe runs from mind to reality, right? And so that idea is more ultimate than other kinds of reality, right? That's a really rough uh, understanding of idealism. By the mid-1900s in secular philosophy, no one can be idealists anymore. Why? Because we're, we're all materialist evolutionists, right? I mean, not we are, but in secular philosophy, right? So in, in, by, by the mid-1900s, we're all um, uh, materialist, naturalist evolutionists. And on materialism, on naturalism, uh, almost always or almost inevitably, you have to put the causal arrow the other way, right? In the beginning, right, it's, it's the idea, and I don't remember who I stole this from, that psychology really reduces to chemistry in the brain, and that chemistry really reduces to biology, and that biology really reduces to physics. Or I'm sorry, psychology to biology to chemistry to physics. Everything is at root just physics, right? It's just matter in motion. It's just molecules doing what they do at this temperature and pressure, right? And so in the beginning, their stuff and somewhere along the line, and we, you know, we don't have to uh, uh, say how, but somewhere along the line, the stuff became conscious, right? Again, on evolution, on naturalism. In that regard, you can't be an idealist anymore. Does that, does that make sense, right? No one can be idealist. So here's, here's the, 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 the big problem. For Kant, if you're an idealist, the way you must think it makes sense at some level to say, then that's the way things must be. Right? Do you see if you put idealism into that bowl and mix it together, that holds together better? You're tracking with me? Right? So, so, so 
uh, that when if I say uh, as a as a premise, the way you think about things is the way that things must be. That sounds absurd to us because we're most we our, our sort of default setting is more on the materialist side of things. Right? We think of mind as somehow anterior uh, to matter. But for Kant, as an idealist, um, it, it goes the other way. Strawson here is on the materialist side of things, but he's still trying to use a, a transcendental argument to prove external, uh, the ex existence, the enduring existence of external worlds. A philosopher comes along by the name of Barry Stroud. Um, Stroud's a uh, was a fascinating philosopher. He's the central character, central bad guy of my dissertation. Uh, he was writing philosophy well into his 80s uh, in the University of California system. And, and, and um, uh, unlike a lot of modern philosophy, um, kind of clear. <laughs> kind of remarkable. Um, Stroud would be identified as a skeptical philosopher. Now, he's not so stupid as to endorse skepticism, right? He's not so stupid as to say, my premise is we can't know anything, right? Because that's obviously stupid, right? But, but what Stroud does, and I appreciate him for this, and, and as Ventilians, um, you know, Hume is, is a useful philosopher, and I think Stroud is a useful philosopher on the same way, we should be grateful for skeptics because skeptics come along to the autonomous man and say, actually, you still haven't shown that um, you know anything, right? And, and so Stroud isn't so much making a case for skepticism as constantly being an irritant among the philosophers by showing them that they haven't adequately refuted skepticism. Does that make sense? Now, I don't think you can ride that fence that long, but he tries. What Stroud claims, all right, we have 15 minutes. What Stroud claims is that a transcendental argument, so we, we um, think about what must necessarily be the case for us to have intelligible experience, right? That's the transcendental argument question, right? What must we, we have intelligible experience, what must be so that would enable that? Stroud says that can allow us on a kind of a coherentism basis, I don't think he uses that, that term, but if that's useful to you. On a coherentism basis, it would allow us to believe other propositions that would enable, that, that, would, that are coherent with our having intelligible experience, right? So, so I have intelligible experience. For me to have intelligible experience, it must be the case that X and Y and Z, and therefore I am justified in believing those other propositions. And what Stroud says is, yes, a transcendental argument allows you to believe that X and Y and Z are so, but it does not demonstrate that X and Y and Z are actually so in, in the external world. You track that? If you track that, you understand. That's a devastating argument, right? Let's, let's suck it back to Van Til for a second. Van, when we sit down with someone in, the, in our hypothetical Starbucks to have an apologetics conversation, and we break, we, we go full Bonson on this guy, right? And, and we're going we're gonna to give him a transcendental argument and show him the absolute certain truth of the, the Christian belief. And, and it turns out that the guy that you're talking to in Starbucks is actually Barry Stroud, right? He's dead now, so that's complicating. <laughs> <clears throat> but you're talking to Barry Stroud, and, and you drop a transcendental argument. He says, okay, what you've done is shown that I cannot coherently deny that Christianity is true, but you haven't actually shown that Christianity is true, right? You've shown that I must believe that this is so. But there's still another gap to show that it actually is so. You see the, you see the issue, right? This is the, the Stroudian objection to a transcendental argument. Um, and it is considered, if you look at the literature on transcendental arguments, it is considered to be a devastating response to Stroud, or Strawson, I'm sorry. 
uh, that Strawson wanted to, to rehabilitate these transcendental arguments, and Stroud says, they don't do what you think they do. They, they don't get us to proving the truth of anything. At best, they merely show that there is a class of propositions that we cannot coherently deny. Okay. There's two things, there's two ways we could go with that. Um, so uh, in, in, in the wake of Stroud's argument, the move among those who are advocating transcendental arguments, and again, this is all going on seemingly without any interaction with any Vantillian transcendental argument user, right? Um, the, the, in the wake of Stroud, the tendency was to uh, uh, retreat a little and endorse what are called modest transcendental arguments. Right, which seems like a contradiction in terms. <laughs> God is modestly transcendental. Um, um, a modest transcendental argument uh, relinquishes making claims about external worlds or about metaphysical reality and instead m is content to merely make claims about things that we must believe. Right? You see how that's, that's, that's the retreat is, okay, you're right. I can't prove to you that God exists or that Christianity is true, but I have shown you that you can't deny it, which is not nothing. Right? And I, I, I've got sections of my notes that I can't get to this morning. There are ways of reading Van Til where he sometimes kind of sounds like that. that. That a lot of what we're doing in apologetics is not so much making a proof or a positive case, uh, an affirmative case, right? Despite, uh, so uh, uh, Oliphant does some stuff on this and, and, and he's worth reading. The question of whether Van Til is after proof or persuasion. I have a chapter in my dissertation about it. Um, and I think Van Til is, and I know this is, um, a, I, I say this with fear and trepidation, as a convinced Van Tilian, I think he's unclear on this question. Um, because there are statements where he says, the only absolutely certain proof is this, right? But there are other times where he says, we're actually making sort of a, 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 an indirect argument or a negative argument, right? Um, but if it, so, so that, that would be one way to say, is, is, as, a, as a moderate transcendental argument, I have shown the guy sitting in Starbucks that he can't coherently deny that Christianity is true. Uh, I haven't proved that it is true, but, but I've said something, right? I've, I've, I've shut the mouth of the opposer, right? The problem is Stroud comes back later and says, I think I have something more to say even about modest transcendental arguments, right? And it's this. Let me give you this as an illustration. Suppose you come to find, one of the reasons I love reading philosophy is you get really weird thought experiments, right? So suppose you come to find that there is some sort of um, growth on your brain. And, and as an effect of this growth on your brain, as a consequence of it, it is impossible for you to deny that the sky is blue, right? That, that, that whatever this thing is seeping into your brain inevitably for you forms the belief that the sky is blue, right? This thing's been on your brain the whole time and then you come to discover that you've got this thing on your brain, right? So you now know, right, before that I was ignorant, I just believed the sky was blue. Now I come to realize, I've, it's, it's, it's shown to me, I've got this thing growing in my brain that creates sky is blue beliefs in my mind, just unavoidably, right? Does my knowledge of that brain thing, should it give me more confidence that the sky actually is blue or less? my knowledge of the tumor should actually decrease my confidence that the sky actually is blue. Does that make sense why that would be so, right? What Stroud says is, if we find that, that our brains are wired in such a way that certain beliefs are inevitable for us, we should discount the likelihood that those beliefs are actually true rather than give them added credence. Isn't that happy for Ventilians? 
right? So here I am, I'm advancing a transcendental argument for, for Christian theism, and, and I'm talking to uh, our hypothetical Barry Stroud, and he's like, yeah, okay, I, I see what you're saying. So it is inevitable that I believe that Christianity is true, therefore I should hold at arm's length the, the idea that Christianity actually is true, because I know that it's unavoidable for whatever reason for a critter like me. Now, the reason we should not be surprised that there are these kinds of, there, there's actually a third um, or a, a second uh, philosopher who's also advancing critiques, uh, a major critique of transcendental arguments. It's a guy named, I, I never pronounced this, right? It's a sign of scholarship that there's all these names that you recognize, but you've never pronounced because you only read them. Uh, it, it's, it's got an umlaut in it, uh, a K-O with an umlaut, R-N-E-R, -E so corner or kerner. Um, something like that. Um, he advances what's called the uniqueness problem, which I, undoubtedly, if you've thought about transcendental arguments with reference to God, you've probably uh, thought about, is, is uh, we want to say that Christianity alone is the sure foundation or the only possible foundation for intelligible experience. There are some interesting counter arguments. You may have encountered these online or, or perhaps not. What if, what if, you, you had a, um, uh, you know, a, a alternative world in which you have something almost exactly like Christianity, except there are four members of the Godhead and not three. Would that allow for intelligible experience? And if not, why not? Right? Because obviously if, if we deny the Trinity, if we have a quadwernity or something like that, we've, we have, that's not Christianity. Right? So this is the uniqueness problem. Right? <clears throat> what I want us to see at this point is these problems, and hopefully I'll address how we answer some of these problems after lunch, right? So we can just, you know, relax during lunch and not be, and we can be utterly untroubled by the problem hanging over our heads right now. Um, we shouldn't be surprised that transcendental arguments have these problems because transcendental arguments are not intrinsically uh, isolated or insulated from autonomy. Does that make sense? That, that if you attempt to grab hold of the transcendental argument form and, and I am going to deny the Lordship of Christ, I'm going to deny the authority of the Father, and I'm going to sit here and on the basis of uh, in my own intelligible experience deduce the nature of the way things must be. As Vantillians, we should not be surprised to find that that doesn't work. <laughs> right? Like that radical commitment of, to autonomy, I look at a guy like Stroud and say, thank you, you have shown that the, this argument form, if rooted in autonomy, is just as bad as any other argument form rooted in autonomy, right? Because the issue is not merely how we structure our argument, it's how do we deal with the question of autonomy. And that's what we'll talk about after lunch.